Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be speaking with Professor Amelia Moore about her new book, Destination Anthropocene, Science and Tourism in the Bahamas, out from University of California Press in 2019. And Destination Anthropocene is an exciting and important examination of how the science and the idea of global warming are realized and implemented and become policy on the ground in one of the most climatically vulnerable nations in the world, the Bahamas. More illuminates the ways that social and political adaptations to climate change can do and might not have to reproduce the inequalities inherited from colonialism and the age of fossil fuels. Without further delay, I'm very pleased to be sharing with you today my interview with Professor Moore. Amelia, thank you so much for joining me here. You're very welcome. Uh, so I really love this book. And before we even really start into it, I just want to give a little pitch that, I mean, this is such a beautifully and well-written book. And it really strikes me as an excellent book to teach with. I could really see using this or chapters within it in the classroom. And uh, it's a great asset in that regard. And, and so thank you for writing it. Oh, thank you. That's really wonderful to hear. So I'd like to start with just a little bit of how you came around to this project and uh, a little bit about your own intellectual path from being a participant in climate change science to becoming an ethnographer of such practice. Yeah, well, um, I, I feel as though, you know, the Bahamas came to me. I didn't go to the Bahamas and the, the, these questions um, were kind of put to me. Um, because of um, positions I put myself in. And so none of it was intentional at first, and but it kind of came to all make sense in retrospect, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, so I, I say in the book, I am, I'm an American. Um, I grew up in Washington State. Uh, I am a person of uh, mixed race background, but as far as any of my family knows, like none of our ancestors are Bahamian. Um, and so I had no ties to the, to the Bahamas whatsoever, but I did have a deep love for what at that time I would have called the environment or nature. Now I'm not so sure how comfortable I am with that language, but but when I was in high school, I was convinced I wanted to be a, a zoologist. I wanted to spend time with, with animals. Um, I had pictures of uh, all kinds of creatures put up all over my room that I tore out of the pages of Ranger Rick magazine. I don't know if anybody remembers what that is, but I was just really obsessed with uh, things like pangolins. Um, and so I thought I wanted to be a, a zoologist. I thought I wanted to save nature and save species. It was a time in the 90s where uh, biodiversity was a very uh, popular concept. 
and uh, conservation was becoming more and more mainstream uh, in the United States, in particular, and you know, spreading around the world from the United States. And then I went to college, um, and I took a course in political ecology with uh, Paige West, who is an environmental anthropologist at Columbia University. And I think that was the beginning of a change where, you know, I continued down my path of becoming an environmental scientist for the purposes of getting a bachelor's degree, but I could not, I could no longer see the natural world or the environment or think of the planet as something that was somehow removed from um, human life and human meaning and from the messy politics of human existence. That kind of angled me towards my interest in anthropology and towards uh, the work that would eventually become this book. And, and how did this book in particular, you know, what, why the Bahamas and how did you decide? So, yeah. So, so as an undergraduate, I needed to do field research as part of my degree and uh, majors in my major were required to join pre-existing projects. We couldn't just go out and invent our own, which is a good idea when you're, you know, 20. You shouldn't go out necessarily and start messing around by yourself. But um, because I was at that point minoring in cultural anthropology, having taken this political ecology course taught by an anthropologist and having, you know, kind of waded into the world of, um, of social science, um, I was one of our only majors in my degree that had a social science um, component to my to my studies. And so the project basically like looked at the list of available students and picked me to go into the Bahamas and do social research. And what that meant was to go and interview fishermen in a small island settlement. Um, and I'd never been before. And my first choice was to go to Africa to study blue-faced monkey behavior. So at some point, I think I was probably a little bit miffed that I was going to the Bahamas and not to Africa, um, to Kenya. But um, uh, I ended up going to the Bahamas and it ended up uh, changing the course of my life um, and also uh, planting the seeds, that project planted the seeds for a lot of the thoughts that end up in this book. As you were getting involved with the Bahamas as a researcher, the Bahamas was meanwhile becoming internationally recognized as an exemplar site or poster child of the consequences of climate disruption like other small island nations, how did this shape your experience and understanding of these islands? Well, I came to learn, you know, as a very low person on the totem pole of a very large um, research project funded by the National Science Foundation, that the, the funding criteria really drove the research and what the research questions were and how the research was designed. Um, and so as, you know, the 90s became the 2000s, biodiversity conservation was kind of being supplanted or complicated by uh, questions about the immediacy of climate change and climate change mitigation and adaptation and kind of understanding uh, the effects of climate change in particular locales around the world and 
particularly, especially in locales considered to be vulnerable. And so I, you know, through my engagement um, in projects in the Bahamas and working with researchers, I got to see how, you know, the Bahamas has shifted from being a place uh, that is only valued externally for its uh, tourism capacity um, to becoming a place that is, you know, valued for its uh, rare and endemic species, of which there are a few, to being valued uh, as a place that is particularly vulnerable to the effects of climate change, such as sea level rise, and how the kinds of work that people, you know, receive grant funding to do shifts as these kind of prevailing trends or prevailing imaginaries um, about the significance of the place and the space changes. Um, and so if you stay in a place long enough um, and you observe or a part of research going on in a particular place long enough, you can see how the, the research goals and designs and um, protocols and funding sources shift with these trends in kind of larger questions about, you know, the relevance of knowledge and the immediacy and urgency of uh, funding, uh, funding dollars. Yeah. You know, so in this book, you also, you know, as you're looking at climate change science in the Bahamas and I guess the many other activities that kind of go around that, including pedagogy and tourism and so forth, uh, you you coined this term uh, global climate science to kind of bring all these different activities together. Um, can you explain a little bit what you, why you coined that term and, and what it gets us to like think of all these activities as a whole? Well, yeah, so it's global change science. Um, and that that's not a particularly technical term. Like I'm, I didn't come up with it to try to... Um, talk about something new, but I get, it's also trying to put, like you're saying, put like things together. Um, so, you know, atmospheric scientists, um, oceanographers, um, paleoclimatologists, like uh, ecologists studying the effects of global change. Um, these are all different kinds of scientists. Uh, they work from in different fields and often in different silos. They might all be called natural science scientists in some way. Um, but a lot, they're also social, social scientists studying the effects of this change. And so I just wanted to give a kind of an umbrella term. They're not all studying climate change either, which is an important distinction, but they are studying anthropogenic change in the environment, their words, I would think, um, and the socio-environment. Um, and so I wanted just kind of an umbrella term to mark this as a, an event. You probably now have more global change scientists um, working on kind of similar and related issues around the world than you ever have had before. Um, they're not all, you know, atmospheric chemists. That makes sense. And why do you think that it is particularly important to use ethnographic and anthropological methods to examine this global change science and its applications and implications in places like the Bahamas? Mm 
Uh, because ethnography can provide so much depth and richness and context and um, kind of capacity to uh, reveal multiple perspectives. Um, whereas, well, in part because you can, a big part of ethno ethnographic research is participant observation, going there, participating in the questions at hand directly and observing the people and processes and projects at work in real time as it, you know, as it's happening. And that gives you just so much more information than if you were only able to ask a few people a few questions or administer a survey um, where you already have to kind of determine what it is that you want to know in the first place. Um, and you also get to see the difference between what people say when they are asked questions directly and what they actually do um, over days and weeks and months of time um, working on particular questions and problems. So it, it, I think it gives you a much more realistic and holistic sense of how life is lived and, and questions are framed and enacted in real places and real spaces in real time. Um, so in that sense, ethnographic research on, you know, climate change and, I don't know, the question of anthropogenesis and how that is uh, revealed, uh, whether ethically or not, and appropriately or not in place um, is something that, you know, people, we don't do that enough. We don't, we take scientists word for things. We take them for granted that they can articulate uh, things correctly, but sometimes we have to go and see them and watch them and think about the places that they're working in different ways to understand that there's a lot more to it. I don't know if I answered all aspects of that question. Well, and, and so what do you think then is the kind of overall, I don't know if I would put it as role, but the place of anthropology in this moment of understanding climate change and its manifestations in our world? I mean, anthropology for me, and, you know, and I'm biased as an anthropologist, but I think can play multiple roles. There's the, I think, more commonly understood role where uh, anthropology is kind of a tool for climate research uh, when it comes to wanting to understand how local people are are being affected by uh, environmental impacts in particular ways, um, where anthropologists kind of work as translators, you know, between the local populations and the scientific, global scientific community, um, and I think that's kind of a more commonly recognized relationship between anthropology and, and global change science. Um, but then uh, there's also the role of the uh, anthropology as studying, you know, kind of all human uh, behaviors and components of human life. So the responsibility then to study the science itself, to study climate change scientists, just as you might study local populations in particular places and to understand how they make meaning, how they, uh, act in the world, the kinds of relationships they have and the effects of their work in places. And then there's also the role of anthropology of thinking about all of the knowledge that this field of global chain science produces. Um, thinking about 
what climate change actually means as a social concept, what ideas like the Anthropocene actually might mean as a social concept, what their political stakes are, what their histories are, where they come from in terms of the genealogies of, of them, those things as an idea. Yeah. Um, and what that, how that, those ideas materialize in the world. So I think anthropology is actually working on multiple levels, most of which uh, other scientists don't realize uh, that it's doing. <laughs> right. <laughs> because, in part because we're not that great about then communicating that back. In academic discussions and debates, especially in the humanities and social sciences, there's a lot of, let's say, loftier discussion about what this idea of the Anthropocene is and what it means for human civilization. What your book so importantly contributes to this conversation is to remind us that the idea of the Anthropocene and the knowledge we create about global warming are affected on the ground in real concrete places and are entangled with local politics and in history. Absolutely. I mean, the Anthropocene is not the same in the Bahamas as it is in Siberia. Um, the, not only are the actual effects of change experienced um, and manifested very differently there, but the ways in which scientific problems are framed are look different. The way in which relationships are built um, between researchers and people and between um, researchers and existing industries are different. Um, and so there, are, I've argued that there are multiple Anthropocenes you know, at multiple levels around the world. This is in no way a, a homogenous notion. And that needs to be traced. I happen to trace it in the Bahamas and, you know, with an ethnography of Anthropocene science or global change science uh, in that place. Um, but I really very much look forward to other researchers following global change science into other kinds of particular places. Yeah. And, and to, to kind of follow on that, sorry, I just lost my train of thought. Um, Yes, to follow on that, uh, you know, we at this moment in in climate change, in the Anthropocene, there's so much uh, looking to science to solve these problems, to hope for a technical fix um, or or some kind of um, technical bureaucratic fix that allows us to mostly continue our lives as they are and not uh, have to create the, the dynamic changes required of us. And all of that is kind of uh, founded on an idea of science as being quite distinct from other parts of society. It's, it's a, a realm of pure knowledge and uh, therefore has the ability to uh, objectively react to this moment. But what's so interesting in your research in the Bahamas is how deeply imbricated uh, field science is with, for instance, the tourism industry. I'm wondering if you can explain a little bit about what you found in that connection between, as your um, a subtitle of the book says, science and tourism in the Bahamas. Well, science and tourism are a lot more connected there and arguably in many places around the world than uh, we like to imagine that they are. We like to think of these things as particularly distinct. You know, scientists, you know, have their training and expertise, and they come from particular backgrounds and places um, where they are not uh, 
let's see, caught up or part of um, kind of industrial capitalism or, um, uh, you know, entrepreneurial ventures in the way that, you know, we don't think that those things are supposed to be, have as much overlap as they actually do, particularly when we're thinking about ecology and field work and um, things like that. It's not the same as, you know, like medical science and um, drug companies like that. I think we have a better understanding of, you know, how those things might be fully entangled. But um, when it comes to, you know, the natural sciences and the tourism industry, I, I continue to see those fields that, you know, again, that we imagine are, you know, very distinctive as becoming more and more entangled particularly with the rise of things like ecotourism um, and sustainable tourism, where the scientific research is actually providing the tourism product for the tourism industry to market in the sense of actually identifying the species that have, are supposed to have a certain kind of value and significance, identifying the habitats and areas, uh, providing the, um, justification for creating protected areas that then become sites of value for certain kinds of tourism ventures. You know, those are just some easy uh, examples to give. Yeah. And so on the one hand at this, you know, with climate change, the Bahamas are extremely vulnerable um, and especially some of the uh, natural um, natural uh, features that people go there to uh, see as tourists, such as the coral reefs are uh, under great pressure. Um, And this threatens very much the tourism industry. And so it seems that there's a sort of um, shift in how the Bahamas, that is leadership within the Bahamas is trying to brand the island as a tourist destination. And it's a a a shift in some ways and it's business as usual in other ways. So at worst, it's just a marketing shift. It's greenwashing. It's, it's green branding. It's saying, um, you know, come in, you know, millions of visitors, please come. And, but, you know, now instead of just coming to lay on the beach and drink a lot of uh, Bahama mamas, um, now you can also go kayaking in this wetland. Now you can also get a coral reef restoration dive certification, um, you know, for if you only spend a couple hours diving um, in an afternoon. Uh, now you can go uh, to uh, a protected area and spend part of your afternoon, you know, on a bus tour uh, bird watching. Um, so I think for many in the tourism industry, Ecotourism or, or what some people want to call sustainable tourism is just more value added to their existing tourism product. But of course, the irony then is that it's still millions of people traveling by jet plane and cruise ship to a very small uh, place with very limited um, resources and capacity to actually uh, safely and sustainably handle the, this volume of people. Uh, and so what might appear to be sustainable, like, oh, here's a handful of tourists kayaking in this wetland, completely, you know, that what they call the ecotourism bubble 
actually obscures uh, the fact that those tourists came from the mega resort, you know, a mile down the road. Uh, so I think there's many examples of the tourism industry uh, kind of trying to leverage the sciences to help develop and diversify their, what they call a, their tourism product without actually having to change any of the highly uh, polluting and uh, destructive tourism uh, practices that they already have. Right. And, and you talk about, you know, how this intersects with the lives and livelihoods of people who are not actually directly connected into the tourism industry. And, and you look particularly at, at fisher people. Um, can you explain a little bit about how you see that relationship being recreated in this moment? The relationship between uh, parts of the population who are not, uh, their livelihoods are not part of the tourism industry. Oh, I see. So, well, and I mean, and this was part of the, I think, biodiversity conservation initiatives in places like the Bahamas that are, uh, you know, really known for their marine ecology, their coral reefs, um, and, and certain kinds of marine and coastal habitats. There was a big push to, ex, you know, greatly expand the marine territory that was enclosed in marine protected areas. And there was a big push to make those, uh, what well, was called no-take protected areas, and to scatter those around the country, places where fishing was prohibited. Um, and that's, you know, been relaxed a little bit in favor of kind of managed and mixed use protected areas, but it's still very much the um, shift of the governance of marine space and territory from local islanders, local people, and uh, Bahamian uh, commercial fishers to uh the national kind of conservation regimes, of, you know, non-governmental and quasi-governmental organizations, um, and that. So then, if imagine if you are a, a fisher person who, um, in part, either lives in an island that is too remote to have a large tourism industry because it's just too expensive for your average tourist to to get there, um, and so they go to places that are more accessible. Um, and so your livelihood is fishing or imagine you're a fisher person who doesn't actually want to work in the tourism industry. This is true for many, many fishers um, because they have more freedom and independence uh, working for themselves as fishers. So imagine if you're a fisher and then you, you find that places where you enjoy fishing um, or have had, you know, lots of success fishing are because they're, you know, ecologically productive are becoming um, enclosed in protected areas and you're being told, well, if this affects your livelihood, think about getting into the tourism industry as a natural guide, um, uh, you know, as somebody who can then make money off of visitors as opposed to making money off of uh, fishing. Um, and that puts people in a, you know, in a really difficult position where they, you know, may not want to work in the tourism industry and there may not actually be any viable industry where they are to work in. And yet they're being told, you know, this marine space is more valuable for tourism than it is for your own livelihood and your own livelihood is, you know, destroying this space. So you really need to rethink your choices. Um, now that's not necessarily, you know, the line that the government 
always, or the tourism industry always uh, toes, but it is one that I think has been expressed multiple times for quite a long time in the Bahamas and has um, frustrated many fishers who, who, who I think would not be surprised um, at the argument that the sciences, the natural sciences and the tourism industry are entangled with each other, who would just see that as a matter of course, of course they are. And they're entangled um, in ways that are excluding, excluding them. What about inequalities, power inequalities in the science itself? Climate research is a branch of, of a study that is especially committed to bringing the social and the human back into our understanding of the natural world. Yet, as you write, such research programs often treat local populations uh, simply as the objects of knowledge production and not the subjects or participants. Right. Well, so there you're getting at the continuity with between the current era and a kind of neoliberal industrial capitalist tourism and uh, neoliberal industrial capitalist science uh, and the colonial history, I think. I think for many people who I think would identify as local, um, local people in, in these small places, the difference is in name only in some ways between um, kind of colonial era uh, extraction of knowledge and resources uh, and materials from the space and the um, utilization of local people for labor or for um, information that that would then go on to make uh, settlers more wealthy um, and the kind of the contemporary trends um, which even if they are community-based uh, that can in some ways mean kind of community exploitative you know exploiting exploitative in new ways um, in the name of community so it sounds good it sounds like the opposite um, it sounds bottom-up um, which is what we're all supposed to want to support, but is, you know, still using local populations, local island populations, the descendants of uh, enslaved peoples, primarily uh, in this case, um, as resources themselves for um, environmental projects that are, you know, conducted by and large by uh, what I call many people call Euro-American, um, I don't know if you want to say Western, Northern uh, countries and their projects in the name of the global. But if you look at where, you know, the credit goes, where the funding goes um, and who the ultimate, you know, who the, these projects ultimately serve um, in terms of real concrete uh, gains, it is the researchers not necessarily the communities who are, are again, value added in many ways for, for certain kinds of projects. Yeah. And, you know, one of the ways that you look at this in the book is through this institution, the Island Academy. Can you describe that a little bit for us? Yeah. I mean, and this, this place is not, I think that unique in the world. Um, it is um, a, a, uh, field school and research station 
and um, research institute that is based on an island in the Bahamas and a particular part of one island in the Bahamas that is founded by Americans um, and that is primarily um, staffed by Americans that uh, hosts primarily American uh, students and for the uh, semester long um, field schools um, and also hosts primarily um, European and American researchers to use who come there to use they all come there to use the landscape the island and its marine space marine spaces and its local communities as um, sites of an environmental education or ecological research and it is I think a classic example of um, what we might call an, a neo-colonial project um, but which you know I say in the book somebody who works there said no it's just straight up colonial project. There's nothing neo about it. And this is, you know, from somebody who is very high up in the administration of that organization. Um, they're kind of unabashed about it. Um, that, uh, you know, the school was conceived of, the academy was conceived of and designed to um, utilize the island as um, a resource for knowledge production. Now, they would argue you know, the research research um, is done to uh, solve environmental problems. So it's uh, research has utility for the Bahamas and the students come to become uh, environmental leaders. So it has utility for um, the future of um, ecological leadership globally, or at least in the American context. Um, but that's all all of, you know, all colonial projects were enacted in, in kind of similar, for similar reasons that they were improving the, the lands in which they were um, cited and that they were improving the people upon which they were working and that they were developing, you know, these progress narratives. Uh, and, but again, you have to look at, you know, who, whose problems are being solved? Um, who's actually gaining the most? in terms of wealth, you know, the money, but also in terms of credit, social credit, academic credit, things like that. Uh, and who is, uh, who is there to kind of provide, again, the value added uh, to these endeavors. And I think research stations like this, um, especially if they are uh, owned, managed, um, and uh, primarily benefited by people who are not from that place, um, are, you know, perfect examples of the way in which this kind of, this kind of science really benefits a select few. You know, and one of the ways that you look at this, and, and I think is so fascinating with the Island Academy, is the ways in which it's a utopian project, you know, that it's trying to prefigure the kinds of technologies that would create a supposedly sustainable Bahamas um, how do you see that kind of contributing to this colonial uh, aspect of the place? I mean, that I like that you mentioned that because the, the utopian society um, is very much a characteristic of this, of this particular academy. Um, some people have even said it's very cultish. In that, in the way that you know, people, the, it's the students who go there in particular 
um, come away feeling like they have had, they have seen the future and now they know, you know, how to solve environmental problems. And they are a certain kind of expert and they've, you know, done it the right way. Um, and they're, you know, but they're singularly then incapable, at least many of them that I've met, incapable of looking at the place and their role in it with any kind of critical lens. Um, you know, just a, a zealous adherence to this narrative that sustainability, you know, looks a certain way. Sustainable, the people who can provide sustainability come from certain parts of the world and look a certain way. Uh, and uh, relationships with, you know, there's no problem with the relationships with local people. There's, um, they're only there to, they're there to help. So in that sense, you know, it's, can be, I think we can see many examples of this over time through history in the Caribbean in particular, but not limited to the, to the Caribbean. Yeah. Did that, did that get it enough? Yeah, of what you were? that did, that did. Um, so we're reaching, uh, we're nearing the end of the interview. Are there aspects of this book that you want to make sure are present here for listeners that I haven't thought to ask? Well, I mean, and you know, let's see. The book came out in 2019, and it's in, in August of 2019. And then Hurricane Dorian hit the Bahamas in September of 2019. Um, and then uh, the COVID pandemic hit the world, in, you know, Marchish of 2020, um, affecting the Bahamas as you know as severely, if not more so, or a lot more so than the hurricane. And remember that Hurricane Dorian was one of the strongest hurricanes ever recorded um, in the Atlantic ever. Uh, and it caused quite a bit of destruction and ground the you know, economy to a halt for uh, months, um, and especially in the islands of Abaco and Grand Bahama, where it had the most impact. Um, and now, you know, you combine that with the uh, global pandemic in which the Bahamas just shut down its borders for the second time. Um, this is July of 2020 now that we're speaking. Um, and so, you know, what I really want to stress now, um, and I'm very concerned, you know, the Bahamas is now in a more precarious place than ever. Uh, and I'm really worried that all of this dependence on tourism has left it in a particularly weak place because what it, what kind of economy can you have if the tourists can't come? Um, and all of this global change science, all of this research, I also worry hasn't left anybody who's actually in the Bahamas and living in the Bahamas uh, in any kind of a place to act with any kind of resources to act. Um, and so I, you know, a lot of the, I, you know, the sad thing is, is that this development of the relationship between science and tourism, instead of a relationship between the sciences and I think actual local resilience and sustainable viability, um, and empowerment, uh, and kind of, I don't authority, the development of kind of more localized control over local lives, um, has left has left people in a, in a more precarious position than they might otherwise have been. Um, and so I really want members of the scientific community, especially people who do things like field ecology and field research in the Bahamas to think about going forward, 
you know, if you have the resources to continue to do your field work there, how are, is your research and how are your relationships and how is the relationship between your institution and, you know, the islands of this, of this archipelago, how are you making the place stronger and the people stronger, the local people stronger um, with your work and the way you do your work uh, so that, you know, combined crises like this don't just become opportunities for you to do more research there at the expense of others. I think that's a thing I would like to say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what are you working on next? Oh, a lot of things. Too many things, maybe. Um, I have some ongoing research in Indonesia uh, that I'm doing with a large team of researchers from um, uh, the University of Hasanuddin in, in Indonesia and with my own institution working with um, a, a large organization that I won't name here, but who is uh, uh, funding a coral restoration, a la very large scale coral restoration project there. And mm. so I'm working with a team to study the social effects of that coral restoration project on, you know, you know small island communities. Um, so it's in that sense, it's similar. Um, and then I'm also working off uh, of the shore of the, state of Rhode Island, which is where I live now, um, again, working with a team, um, uh, but this time in, you know, examining the history of a place called Block Island, which is again, like an island off the shore of Rhode Island. Rhode Island is not an island. <laughs> Most people probably know that, but, right. um, um, but on Block Island, um, working with a, a local family um, who has kind of long-term historical ties to that island, to develop their own family history of that kind of Native American and African American presence on that island. So I'm working with a family um, and with teams of researchers um, at a number of universities and institutions here in New England to tell that story. It's kind of a microcosmic history of Southern New England as well. Um, and I probably shouldn't be doing any more than that. Um, but of course, I'm still following events in the Bahamas very closely place very near and dear to my heart and I am incredibly concerned about what um, the global pandemic means for that country um, and I'm very much also following that. Wow it's a lot on your plate. <laughs> yeah but it's all good work so I'm grateful for that. Yeah well Amelia thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me about your book and um, I look forward to your new ones coming out. Yeah, uh, don't hold your breath, <laughs> but thank you very much. And it was a pleasure. Um, it was, it's always wonderful to talk to uh, one of the few people who actually spent time reading this book. Appreciate <laughs> it.